Hello and welcome to the October 20th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of the latest articles published on annals.org. I know how busy our listeners are in these challenging times, so let's get right to articles published online on October 13th. The first article presents a new measure of hospital performance that offers some improvement over the 30-day readmission measure that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services currently uses to evaluate quality in the Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program and to issue penalties to those hospitals that underperform. Hospitals have been penalized more than $3 billion to date under this program. However, the 30-day readmission measure has increasingly been scrutinized because it provides an incomplete picture of hospital visits after discharge. In contrast, a new measure described in this article, called the Excess Days in Acute Care Measure, captures all hospital encounters, inpatient, emergency department, and observational stays that occur within 30 days of discharge and thus provides a more comprehensive picture of performance. Researchers from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center studied more than 3,100 hospitals that participated in the Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program in fiscal year 2019 to determine whether using the new measure instead of readmissions would change hospital penalty status for three clinical conditions targeted by the program. They found that one quarter of hospitals' penalty status would change if the new measure was used instead of the 30-day readmission measure. In addition, fewer smaller hospitals and rural hospitals would receive financial penalties based on the new measure. According to the authors, these findings suggest that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services should consider using the new, more comprehensive measure to more accurately evaluate hospital performance. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Saul Weingart of Tufts University writes of the 30-day readmission measure, quote, Healthcare organizations can gain the measure by managing readmissions in the emergency department or under observation status. The measure fails to identify avoidable admissions or to distinguish between early, early failures that are attributable to in-hospital services and late, early failures that are often attributable to outpatient care. It does not account for patients who die within 30 days of discharge, nor does it account for patients with multiple readmissions during the 30-day window or those with an extended length of stay. Particularly troubling, the measure fails to account adequately for organizations that care for a disproportionate number of patients with food and housing insecurity or behavioral and substance use disorders, conditions that increase the risk of readmission. Accordingly, the penalty is regressive in that it falls disproportionately on small and rural hospitals and on safety net institutions that have fewer resources to build out readmission prevention programs than their well-heeled cousins, end quote. Next is a brief research report that found that nearly one in eight commercially insured patients nationwide who underwent an elective colonoscopy between 2012 and 2017 performed by an in-network provider received potential surprise bills for out-of-network expenses, often totaling hundreds of dollars or more. These findings are concerning because colonoscopy is the most effective colorectal cancer prevention strategy, and surprise billing may deter patients from getting recommended screenings. Researchers from the University of Virginia and the University of Michigan reviewed 1.1 million claims from a large national insurer 
to estimate the prevalence, amount, and source of out-of-network claims for commercially insured patients having an elective colonoscopy when all the endoscopists and facilities were in-network. The researchers found that 12.1% of cases received out-of-network claims with an average surprise bill of $418. The bills often came because of the use of out-of-network anesthesiologists and out-of-network pathologists. The researchers suggest that to spare patients surprise bills, endoscopists and hospitals should partner with anesthesia and pathology providers who are in-network. And they should consider cost-saving strategies such as endoscopist-provided sedation rather than use of deeper anesthesia. They also suggest that not all low-risk polyps need to be sent for pathological evaluation, which could offer further savings. On November 2, 2020, new federal rules in the U.S. will implement the bipartisan 21st Century Cures Act that in part promotes patient access to their electronic health information, supports provider needs, advances innovation, and addresses industry-wide information blocking practices. The rules forbid healthcare organizations from restricting patients' access to their electronic healthcare data. Although the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, gave patients the legal right to review their medical records, the new ruling goes further by giving them the right to access their electronic health records rapidly and conveniently via secure online portals. Providers must not only share test results, medication lists, and referral information, but also clinicians' notes. Over the past decade, this practice innovation, known as Open Notes, has spread widely, and today more than 50 million patients in the U.S. are offered access to their clinical notes. As the rest of America's clinicians prepare for the change, a commentary published on October 13th discusses what has been learned about this practice and what remains uncharted territory. In the company editorial, Dr. Heather Ganser, a practicing general internist and chair of the American College of Physicians Board of Regents, writes, quote, The cloak that effectively covers many notes will be lifted on November 2nd of this year, when the 21st Century Cures Act is implemented and patients are to have ready access to their medical record, including the clinical notes. Patients often misunderstand medical jargon. Will reading notes cause patient confusion and distress? Physicians are already experiencing burnout from spending hours at the end of the day completing the documentation for the electronic health record, or writing notes with the realization that the patient may be reading them be one more burden for physicians. The answers to these questions lie in the structure, content, and style, but most importantly, the goal of the notes." End quote. On October 13th, Annals also published the latest update of a living evidence review on ventilator techniques and patient outcomes and transmission of coronavirus infections. Despite identifying newly published studies, the authors conclude, as in their initial review, that indirect and low certainty evidence suggests that the use of non-invasive ventilation, similar to invasive mechanical ventilation, probably reduces mortality but may increase the risk for transmission of COVID-19 to healthcare workers. Moving to articles published on annals.org on October 20th. Upper GI endoscopic examination is used to detect neoplastic lesions in the pharynx, esophagus, and stomach. However, early-stage lesions may be overlooked by conventional white light endoscopy. 
linked color imaging, a new image-enhanced endoscopy technique that allows users to recognize slight differences in mucosal color, is hypothesized to be more effective than conventional white light imaging for detecting tumors in the upper GI tract. Researchers from Hokkaido, Japan, identified 1,502 patients with known previous or current cancer of the GI tract to compare the performance of linked color imaging with white light imaging in detecting neoplastic lesions in the upper tract. The patients were randomly assigned to white light imaging followed by linked color imaging examination or by linked color imaging followed by white light imaging. The researchers found that the doctors using linked color imaging diagnosed more neoplastic lesions in the first examination than they did with white light imaging. The proportion of patients with overlooked neoplasms was also lower in the linked color imaging group. The authors conclude that linked color imaging is more effective than white light imaging for detecting neoplastic lesions in the pharynx, esophagus, and stomach. The results suggest that many neoplastic lesions are being overlooked by conventional white light endoscopy performed in routine clinical practice. They say to reduce the rate of overlooking neoplasms, linked color imaging should ideally be applied in clinical practice. Manual or digital contact tracing is an important measure for mitigating the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet there are many concerns about how in practice this measure may impede individual liberties. To be effective, contact tracing requires public trust and community engagement, two things that are lacking in the current political and social climate in the United States. A Medicine and Public Issues article presents a framework for assessing the ethics and effectiveness of contact tracing programs. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged the traditional public health balance between benefiting the good of the community through contact tracing and restricting individual liberty. State laws authorize contact tracing by public health officials with safeguards. For example, it is routinely carried out for tuberculosis cases and during measles outbreaks. With COVID-19, contact tracing aims to notify all persons who are within six feet of an infected person for at least 10 minutes during 14 days before diagnosis. Although public health laws allow mandatory contact tracing, in effect, contact tracing is voluntary because people who do not want to cooperate can decline to talk or say they do not recall contacts or locations. Apps and other digital means of contact tracing cannot account for mask wearing, social distancing, or the presence of other safety measures. According to the authors, current efforts at contact tracing have failed because of a lack of trust and engagement among U.S. citizens, in addition to the fact that both manual and digital efforts have been flawed. For contact tracing to work, broad community support is needed. The authors provide a framework by which public health officials and those with large public platforms can work together to disseminate messages to the community and garner acceptance. A special focus should be directed at communities of color where the authors say there is more mistrust of contact tracing. According to the authors, even if apps used for contact tracing have acceptable risk to privacy, complex cultural, political, and ideological problems and trade-offs need to be resolved for broad support for all mitigation efforts to be effective. Next is a commentary by Drs. Leonard Berry and Raina Lee Adawi Adresh that argues that healthcare organizations should be as generous as their workers. 
the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed tremendous generosity of frontline workers who put themselves at risk to care for patients. The authors of this commentary believe that a generous organizational culture is imperative for delivering high quality healthcare. Organizational leaders must narrow any trust gap between them and their employees by always being truthful, promoting transparency, listening actively, practicing inclusion over exclusion, investing in the benefits that matter the most, and being visible at the point of care. In service organizations, trust is a precious asset not captured on a balance sheet. The best organizations make generosity a foundational principle of their culture. They epitomize fairness, generosity, kindness, and character. They offer a sense of mission and purpose. The authors propose that if healthcare workers witness and feel that generosity on a daily basis, so will patients and their families. October 20th also brings the latest episode of the Annals Consult Guys. In this episode, Drs. Murley and Weitz explore questions related to preoperative management of patients with regular cannabis use. This month's Annals for Hospitals feature includes a commentary on contrast-induced acute kidney injury, as well as key points from recent articles of particular relevance to hospital medicine. And last but not least is the most recent episode of the Annals on Call podcast. Dr. Center and Dr. Jennifer Brown discuss the underdiagnosis of primary aldosteronism. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new articles I've mentioned. You can earn CME and MOC credit if you do. I also hope you'll return in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. In the meantime, stay well and stay safe as COVID-19 cases unfortunately are on the rise in 33 U.S. states and other locales around the world as I record this podcast. And for listeners in the U.S., whether by mail or in person, make a plan to vote. No matter how busy you are, voting is the greatest privilege of our democracy. Don't squander this privilege. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.